CD. All right, the topic tonight is identifying with Jesus, loyalty to him, and to each other. Now, normally, when we think about what it means to identify with Jesus or to identify with Christ, it's a phrase that's not unfamiliar to New Covenant Christians, and there are some excellent ideas that flow out of that phraseology that are worth consideration. What I'd like to begin with tonight is a topic that I had touched base with a couple of days ago, and that is a Pauline doctrine or concept known as the theologically known as the hypostatic union, which is a Greek phrase that was coined by Greek theologians that came after Paul. Now, when I say this is a Pauline idea, and it, it was not a concept that Paul really originated. It originated with Jesus Christ himself. And the teachings of Christ are very clear in this area. It's a, it's a very, in, in brief, it's a very simple idea, and you're, you've heard it before. The phraseology simply is this. Christ is the head of the church. That's it. Christ is the head of the church. Now, when Jesus, when he had his ministry, he talked about the importance of the church being connected to him. And so he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And there are other places in the teachings of Jesus that communicate this idea. St. Paul, though, had the task of organizing these Greek churches into something that resembled the body of Christ. And his, his job was difficult. And so he had in his epistles certain phrases and certain ways of expressing the same idea. And, and so we find this phrase that Paul used, Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. We'll find that in several different places in the New Testament. Now, as time passed, and this idea developed a little further, primarily out of the writings of St. Paul, theologians looked at this idea, and they came up with this word that meant a lot to Greek-speaking people. They called it the hypostatic union. Now, the word static means something that doesn't change. Hypo is a prefix that gives us the sense of connectivity. And so, what we've really got is we've got this unchanging reality that is, a, in a sense, it's a big idea, it's a big concept, it's sort of an abstract concept. But Paul's task was to bring that down to some measure of reality for the church's in his lifetime that he was trying to establish and teach and cultivate. So I want to explore just a little bit more about this idea of Christ being the head of the church and what that means on a practical basis. Now there's several different directions we can go with that. So I really need you to pay attention in this study and I, uh, because the first portion of it is going to really lay the foundation for the direction we're going to go that I hope is useful and practical for us now as believers in our time, what does this idea really mean and how can it be applied? So first of all, we'll start off with the, the first useful concept here with Christ being the head of the church. And this is found from Romans chapter number 6. 
Now, one of the things it does is, is this, this idea, it pushes us, it forces us, it compels us, it calls us to identify with Jesus and to take on his attributes. And so we could say that each of us have a duty and a calling to be more Christ-like in our choices, in our behavior, in our attitudes, in our motives. In every part of us, we are called to be more Christ-like. Now, Romans chapter 6 talks about this. And Paul uses a couple of different ideas and ways of expressing it. For example, in Romans 6, 6, he says, Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And then he goes on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, because you're alive unto God. And we reckon ourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. So we're going to take on Christ's attributes. That's what we ought to be doing. And this is because he is the head and we are the body. And is that just like your head tells your body what to do, and your body doesn't rebel against the head and say, I don't want to do it. The body just meekly obeys what the head tells it to do. And so that is the way we ought to respond to Christ and his teachings. <clears throat> but there's another aspect of this, and that's really the direction I'd like to go when we talk about the Christ being the head of the church. And in this respect, it's going to take us in a very practical direction, more laterally. Now, just hold on with me for a moment. We have the idea that Christ is the head of the church, so we have a clear vertical relationship. And we can imagine that. Christ is the head, we are the body. All right, We have a vertical relationship. But it turns out that there's a horizontal aspect that flows out of that vertical relationship. And that's where we're going to be heading today. And this becomes very practical. And this is one of the challenges that Paul had in his interactions with the New Testament churches. And many of his, his epistles run in this direction. He's got to work with, with theological ideas that are a bit out there. They're a bit conceptual. They're a bit abstract. And he's got to bring them into some sort of concrete reality. And so he uses phrases that we need to uh, grapple with and become familiar with. And once we get used to the phraseology of Paul, we can make application when before we didn't really know what he was talking about. All right, so here's what we're going to be doing. Uh, the idea of the hypostatic union, Christ being the head of the church, is going to take us from the abstract world down to our practical real world. All right? Now, if Christ is the head of the church and we are the church, then we are Christ's body, then our loyalty and our commitment to Christ is going to be realized in our loyalty to one another. Now, let me read for you a couple of passages. And I pray that you'll hang with me as I look at some of the epistles and the writings of St. Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 starts off very simple. He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now in Ephesians chapter number 5, Paul uses the same concept in relationship to a marriage. And he's trying to help us understand what marriage ought to be. And in doing so, he's using the relationship of Christ as the head of the church. So he writes in Ephesians 5, this is familiar to many of you, 
He says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And in verse 27, Paul writes, the same chapter, he says that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So Christ is the head of the church, we are the church, then we're Christ's body, then our loyalty and commitment to Christ is realized in our loyalty and our commitment one to another. To put it another way, how can we be loyal to Jesus if we are not loyal to his body? How can we be loyal to Jesus if we're not loyal to his body? If we're not loyal to the head, how can we be loyal, how can we be committed to Jesus if we are not loyal to the body? Let me, let me just take you in another direction. and I don't want to go too fast on this particular area because, like I say, this is the foundation for where we're going. Let's go back to an analogy that Jesus used from John 15 that all of you probably will recognize and I just mentioned a few moments ago. I am the vine, Jesus said, ye are the branches. Probably he's referring to a grapevine because grapes were prolific, common, everybody understood how grapes grow, how to cultivate them and so forth. So if he says, I'm the vine, meaning I'm the main branch and you are the branches, all right. The branches are going to be producing the fruit, but they're going to be deriving their direction and their strength from the vine, the main root tap, that source. Now, imagine any plant, but let's take a grapevine. If, if you had a grapevine that instead of wrapping its little tendrils around a, 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 a fence so it can support itself and produce grapes, Suppose those little grapevines decided that one branch over here is going to attack another branch over here. And it's going to wrap its little tendrils around each other and the vine is going to uh, fight amongst itself and choke, its, choke each other off. Well, what plant does that? Since when does a, one part of a plant attack the other part of the plant? I'm not aware that that happens in the natural world. So, in that respect, you know, we have this, this compelling duty to generate loyalty and commitment to one another if we're going to be loyal and committed to our head. And this is a central notion, a central thought that I think is really important in a practical way in our lives, but it's also consistent with this doctrine and consistent with Bible teaching. So let me take you now through a couple of passages out of Paul's epistles that I believe will articulate what I've just described. All right, now on, on our outline, we're down to point number D of, of Roman numeral one. And I'd like you to, to write this in if, you're, if you care to do so. We show our loyalty to Christ through our loyalty to each other in a congregation. Now, we'll pause on the word congregation because that might need a little definition. But just hang with me on that point. We show our loyalty to Christ through our loyalty to each other in a congregation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians as our beginning point. And I really encourage you to have a look at these passages as I read them. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, beginning at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, 
so is Christ. We are the members of one body. Christ is the head of the body. Drop down to verse 25. Paul actually talks about this, that practically this entire chapter. But Paul writes, after talking about the different members of the body, the ear and the eye and so forth, he says in verse 25, there should be no schism in the body. Schism, that means fighting, division, you know, rah, 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 rah. None of that stuff. <laughs> but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So Paul is saying, look, if you're going to be loyal to Christ, if you're going to be committed to Christ, you have to be loyal and committed one to another. Now Ephesians, chapter number 4. We have a, it's presented in a similar way, so let's go there. Let me begin at verse number 12. He says that the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ... Till we all come in the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now all that phraseology <laughs> and all that those, those pretty and attractive and beautiful and eloquent words are just telling us that Christ is the head, we are the body, we are the different members, and if we're going to have any unity, commitment, and loyalty to Christ, we've got to have commitment and loyalty one toward another. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 15. Paul writes here, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye are called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And finally, Hebrews 13, verse 3. And this, in this case, we have a situation, a circumstance, in which someone is suffering. Paul writes in Hebrews 13, 3. It's believed that Paul is the writer of Hebrews. At least many people believe, and I, I happen to subscribe to that theory, because I think the, the, the concepts in Hebrews parallel the concepts out of the other epistles. But at any rate... Hebrews 13, verse 3, the writer says, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. That means you're there in jail. Okay? And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So when we run into the word body in the New Testament, sometimes it's talking about your physical body. Sometimes it's talking about the body of Christ. Paul used it in both directions, but we've got to get the context. And it's not that really all that difficult to perceive which context the word body is meaning. But as you can see from the passages I've read, this is describing this union of Christ being the head. We are the body. Now, 
I've already told you that we're going to show our loyalty to each other. I believe this has to be done in a real way, in a congregation, in a congregation. Now, let me pause here. I've got to clarify this before I move on any further. Many people apply the concept here of the body of Christ, meaning the church universal. That is, all believers everywhere, living and dead, millions and millions of us scattered all over the world in all kinds of places. And say, well, sure, I'm loyal to the body. I'm loyal. We're connected. Okay, that's fine. I'm not arguing that that's a reality. But I'm arguing that there's a greater reality. And the greater reality that Paul talks about is not talking about this abstract idea of a church universal. He's talking about flesh and blood people that you talk to or you don't talk to, (laughs) that you interact with, that live near you, and that have a relationship with you. That is the body of believers that I believe Paul is referring to. Paul wrote these letters to congregations. He wrote the epistle of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, a specific congregation with lists that we could, we could probably, well, maybe we think we can't, but there were, a, we, there's a list of people that were in that congregation. You follow what I'm saying? These are real flesh and blood people that were alive at that time, living in the city of Ephesus. That's who the book of Ephesians was written to. Same with the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae. Same with the church at Rome and Romans. Same at Corinth over here, Corinthians. These were not, he was not writing these letters to the church universal. He was writing them to particular specific congregations. The people in those congregations had names. Many of them Paul knew personally, and they knew him personally. And he was giving them advice and counsel about how to manage their congregation. Now, I could elaborate a lot on this about what manifests itself as a congregation. I'll kind of leave that up to you to some degree. You know, we live in a time in which, you know, many the mainstream denominations have really dropped the ball. And, that, and that's been a, an enormous disappointment for many people over the last half century. And that, that, that problem continues to, I guess, mushroom in many respects. So it, it, it's a real tangible problem. As a consequence, we are forced in just trying to find some sort of a congregation, some sort of a tangible body that we can connect to, and that's not easy. That, that, that's a real practical issue that, that is difficult. And I'm not trying to minimize that problem, except I'm, but I am trying to, to press you to this thought that it's an important issue for you to really deeply contemplate. Because that's really the concept that I believe Paul teaches here, and he presses the New Testament church into, and that's what we need. And so that's really the direction I'm going. And how you want to define what a congregation is or a church, uh, I'll leave that up to you. I know that when I was younger, I was part of a, an organization that could be called a, a parachurch. I was part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It has many of the qualities of a traditional congregation. Okay, and then there are other ministries that are sort of 
a parachurch ministry. You know, uh, James Dobson had a long, successful ministry. You could call it a parachurch ministry. And people followed James Dobson's leadership and were blessed by that. And you say, well, is that a church? Well, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll be generous and say maybe. But really, the, the traditional concept of a congregation needs to be on the table as having some important validity, and, and we must be careful not to brush that off too quickly and too easily. And many people do. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. Now, as I continue on this, and I'm still I'm moving a little slow through the outline. We'll pick up the pace here. But on point E, I've written down, for those that are following along, I've written down, not having a congregation of real people is to be loyal only to oneself. You're loyal only to yourself. Oh, and okay, maybe your children and your wife. Now, that seems easier. And in the short run, it probably is. But I believe it's short-sighted. I think it really, actually, in the long run, is going to prove to be selfish. And actually, I think it's wrong. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to live. And over the course of our life, if, you're, if you are graced to live to the age of 70 or 80, and you look back at your life, and you can't say that I was part of a congregation, I say, that's a pity. Amen. That is a pity. That is unfortunate, and it's not to your credit. All right. Now, maybe there are circumstances, and I don't mean to be harsh and judgmental. It's not my purpose. My purpose is to try to articulate what I believe Scripture teaches us in a practical way. All right, so let's move on a little bit here. Now, we live in a time when some of the broader institutions around us have failed and continue to fail and are probably going to get worse in their failure. So when broader institutions fail, nearer relationships matter more. So we all know we can't really trust the civil government. We can't trust the press. We can't even, people like us in this room this evening, we can't even trust people in our own hometowns. When we go home whatever town we come from or whatever community we're a part of if we don't live here you can't necessarily trust the people that are in your hometown right. it's not that I'm suggesting you treat them badly on the contrary treat them well treat them with grace and dignity be honest and honorable with them but don't be surprised if it turns out you can't trust them Man. they don't treat you well certainly for those that are in this local congregation here in Shell City Missouri we do our best to treat our neighbors well, but we've discovered <laughs> they don't always treat us well. And we can't count on them, just like we can't count on other, these other large, big institutions out there to watch out for our welfare and treat us with honor and dignity and respect. Amen. So when broader institutions fail, these near relationships are going to matter more and more and more. We are outsiders. You and I, all of us here tonight, we are outsiders. And thus we must be loyal to one another more than ever before. We've got to develop this concept of loyalty because we are outsiders. And so loyalty becomes a chief virtue that we have to cultivate one with another. It's not really a luxury virtue, 
It's not an <laughs> optional virtue. If we can't cultivate loyalty, we're going to suffer greatly. Now, on loyalty, and, and I guess I'm, I'm really going to be sharing you just some, some thoughts here tonight on loyalty uh, from my point of view, and I, I, I wouldn't, well, I'm not here to say I've got the final word on how the best way is to define loyalty. But I'd like to suggest this. I don't think loyalty really is toward abstract institutions. That is to say, suppose you work for, uh, I don't know, suppose you work for IBM. You're not really loyal to IBM. If you have any loyalty to IBM, it's because you're loyal to the man that is running IBM. And if the man, and you believe in IBM because the, you believe the man that's running IBM is taking it in the direction you think it ought to go. And when it gets a new man who runs in a different direction, your loyalty disappears. It's because your loyalty really isn't to abstract institutions. Your loyalty is to people, real people, who represent those institutions. Now, you may have loyalty to an idea, and that's good, and that's fine, that's natural that we have loyalty. You may have loyalty to a, a concept like freedom. But that only manifests itself in a real person, living or dead, who has displayed that idea. Amen. So this is one of the problems we have in our real world in, the, in, the la in my lifetime in terms of those of us like myself who would like to think of himself as a loyal American. The problem we've got is the institutions are changing because the leaders are changing. Now if I had a president like George Washington or Theodore Roosevelt, it would be very easy for me to be a loyal American. It's more difficult now because the man or men that run our nation are running in a direction contrary to where I think it ought to be going. Amen. And so it sets up this dissonance within me. How do I be loyal to this abstraction called America? <laughs> it's very difficult. It's very difficult. It was actually, it was easier two or three years ago. <laughs> I found it a lot easier two or three years ago than I do right now. But So really, to be if you want to be loyal to an idea, it's going to manifest itself into a real person, living or dead, who has displayed that idea. So to emphasize this, loyalty manifests itself toward real flesh and blood people. A real flesh and blood person is where your loyalty is going to be manifested in life. Now, loyalty is often a two-way street. It's often a two-way street between people. It's, it's, usually, it's not an equal obligation, though. So, for example, let's look at a relationship in which you would probably agree with me that there ought to be loyalty in this relationship, but it's really not an equal relationship. And that's the parent-child relationship. So just as an illustration, so you get this idea that loyalty is between people, and there's a, a, there is a mutual obligation here, but it's not necessarily an equal obligation. Consider these two verses in Proverbs. Okay, Proverbs chapter 19 it has something to say about inheritance. Verse number 14, Proverbs 19, 14 says, Houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers. You could say, well, fathers have a duty to be loyal to their children to provide them with houses and riches. But Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 21 reads like this. It says, An inheritance may be gotten hastily, at the beginning, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. 
You might think of the, the, the story of the prodigal son. He thought, if his father is loyal toward me, the prodigal son said, he should give me my inheritance as soon as I ask for it under the circumstances that I think I ought to receive it. The kind-hearted father did so to the hurt of both of them. Really, the loyalty was not equal, and an inheritance in something that a child earns. Parents, you have a duty to be loyal to your children, but children, you have a greater duty to be loyal to your parents. Amen. That is what the commandment says. Right. Honor thy father and mother. There is no commandment for, for parents to honor their children. Amen. Now, but moving along, that's just an illustration to emphasize that loyalty is not necessarily an equal relationship, although there is, it does flow both directions. Now, most of you, I think, would agree with me very quickly that our greatest obligation and our greatest loyalty is to Christ. That's very simple. It's very, shouldn't be difficult. So, for example, Luke 14 and verse number 26 reads this way. Jesus says, you'll recognize these words, Jesus said this. Are you ready? Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters... Yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So there's really no controversy in the New Testament text. We must be loyal to Christ above all. Now the word hate here isn't exactly how we think of it in terms of, of modern English. Hate means to hold in low regard. To hold in low regard. Or in this case, that particular Greek word, it means to love less. To love less. It doesn't, and, and really, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if you insist that you actually have to hate your father and your mother and your sisters in order to love God. That's not the thrust of what Jesus was actually saying. He's saying, by comparison, by comparison, your love and commitment and loyalty to Christ is so great that everything else fades and is a distant second place. Amen. All right? And we, we can perceive that, I do believe. To love less. What this does, though, is this establishes a hierarchy of loyalties. And all of us have to deal with this. Because our real world has a series of multiple loyalties that you must contend with. Now, if you say, oh, no, I don't have multiple loyalties to contend with. Oh, yes, you do. You just haven't thought about it. Or you haven't been dealing with them very well. You do have multiple loyalties to contend with, contend with. You do have to manage these multiple loyalties. It is a fiction to say that I don't have multiple loyalties because you do. And it can be complicated. <laughs> but there is a hierarchy. And there are certain principles that can be useful, I think, to help us make better choices and decisions to work these multiple loyalties out in a way that is pleasing to God, that's going to bring honor to His name, that's going to demonstrate our loyalty to Christ, it's going to demonstrate our loyalty now laterally, because we understand we've got a loyalty to our Father in heaven. We understand we've got the vertical concept, Christ is the head of the church and we're the body. But the body, you see, has this lateral, this sideways, this horizontal reality that we cannot avoid. 
All right. I'd like to, for you to consider four real-world institutions and the actual people that need your loyalty in them. All right? Now, this is my take on the circumstance. I'm trying to make this Bible study very practical, and I hope that I am not uh, giving you bad advice. I don't think I am, and God willing, this is useful for you. So consider four real-world institutions, the actual people that need your loyalty. Now, first of all, I've really already developed this idea that our faith toward Christ is going to be manifested in a real congregation. The question I have for you is this. What real-world person, what flesh-and-blood person is going to be the face of that congregation, is going to be the leader of that congregation, is going to be the one that you demonstrate your loyalty to in terms of a real human being with a flesh and blood body who has a pulse and a heartbeat and breathes in and out just like you do. And the question is, who is your pastor? Your pastor. Now, if you want to be loyal to Christ and you want to apply that loyalty in a real way, in, a real, in this real world, in a real world body, a real world body of believers, a real congregation... You're going to have to demonstrate loyalty to a pastor. Amen. We'll come back to that. Now, of course, a second institution, and this is an easy one and should be pretty obvious. We have our marriage, your marriage. Now, you've got to demonstrate loyalty to your spouse. Now, we can fill in the names of these people. You should be able to say, Pastor Bill Smith yes. or whoever. And you should, if you're married, be able to fill in the name of your spouse. I hope you know that one. That you should be able to write in the name. I am going to be loyal to this person. In being loyal to this person, I am also demonstrating loyalty toward Christ. Then you have a very hard one. This is a hard one. This is your extended family. Now, I like the word clan. C-L-A-N. Not K. I'll go with C-L-A-N. Clan is in, you know, the Highlanders and that sort of thing. Highland clansmen, you know, I'm a Douglas or I'm a whatever. But, of course, this, the, the, the Scottish Highlanders don't have a corner on cl clans. This is really just your extended family. All right? Now, this is a difficult one. We're going to talk about this a little before we're done. But that clan is made up of real people. Now, back in, if you were back in the days of Scotland, and for those of you who are familiar with Scottish history, you know that the way they worked this out is they actually had clan chiefs. And so when it came to be loyal to your clan, you manifested that loyalty to your clan by being loyal to the chief of the clan, the head of the clan, the head of that big extended family. But we don't really have that now. There's certainly no official functions in our society that works that way. Yet, there probably are real names that you need to be thinking about in this area in terms of your extended family. And this is a difficult one. But let's go to the next one. Here's another area of loyalty, and that's your job. Most of us have a boss. We have someone that is a real flesh and blood person. That person has a name. And we ought to demonstrate loyalty to that person. All right, let's flip the outline over. So, <clears throat> each of these loyalties, the problems in life come because they might compete with one another. 
They sometimes compete with each other, and that makes your life hard and unpleasant. Now, I want to lay out the first strategy in managing these potentially competing loyalties. And the first strategy is to practice four traits of a loyal person. So I'm going to give you quickly four character qualities that you need to practice in order to help you manage these competing loyalties to simplify your life. All right, are you ready? Number one, you need honesty with person X, the person you're going to be loyal to. So you need to be honest in the case of your congregation with your pastor. In the case of your marriage, you need to be honest with your spouse. In the case of your extended family, you need to be honest with your extended family members. In the case of your boss, you need to be honest with your employer. Second, you need to be pleased to see their success. Pleased to see their success. You want to see the success of your pastor. You want to see the success of your spouse. You want to see the success of your extended family members. You want to see the success of your employer. You want him to be successful. Third, you want to keep your commitments. Keep your commitments. Now, backing up on the honesty, your life is going to be a lot less tangled up if you're honest. If your motives are proper, you're going to want to see the success of these people. All right? Now, keeping your commitments to person X in all these different areas is going to make it possible for the other person to direct their loyalty to you. you, want, you you're hoping that there's going to be loyalty running in the other direction. Well, what are you doing to make it possible? Well, one of the things you need to be doing is keeping your commitments. When you say, I will be there at this time, or I will do thus and so, keeping that commitment makes it easier for your employee, employer to be loyal back to you. It makes it easier for your spouse to be loyal back to you. It makes it easier for your pastor or for an extended family member to be loyal back to you if you keep your commitments. And finally, willing to suffer with person X. Suffer. Now this is really the ultimate test that binds hearts together. And I'd, I'd like to pause on the point of, of, of being willing to suffer with someone in terms of winning and building loyalty. There's a story in the life of David of a man, uh, rather obscure, really, but it's worth mentioning. I'd like to turn, ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and introduce you to a character named Ittai. 2 Samuel chapter number 15. All right, 2 Samuel 15. You might find this interesting. I pray you do. So everyone remembers the story probably of David and Absalom and how Absalom launched a rebellion against his father. Now there's many things we could talk about regarding loyalty there, but that's not the man I'm talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 15, let's break into the middle of this story. Absalom is riding high. It looks like he's got everything going for him and looks like David's in big trouble. David is fleeing his capital city. And his son's army is hot on his trail. David's in deep trouble. Deep trouble. All right. 2 Samuel 15, starting at verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifice. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Bad situation for David. Now, let's drop down 
to verse number 19. There's a gentleman here named Ittai. Verse 19. David, this is the king. King David says to Ittai, I'm in verse 19. Wherefore goest thou also with us? Why are you coming with me, Ittai? Why are you coming with me? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither I may return, thou take back thy brethren, mercy and truth with thee. Anyway, David basically says, look, my situation is terrible. It's horrible. I, I, the whole country is running against me. Save yourself and your family. Don't come with me. I'm going to be an outlaw again. Like when I was a young man running away from Saul. Save yourself, Ittai. But look at what Ittai says in verse number 21. Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my king the Lord liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even there will thy servant be. I'm with you, David, no matter what, to the bitter end. To the bitter end, whatever the bitter end might be. Amen. And David said, it I go and pass over. Okay, I'll take you. If you insist, come along. And then it says, it I passed over and his men and all the little ones with him. He had his children, grandchildren, we don't know who they were, but he had children with him, small ones. And all the country wept with a loud voice. All the people passed over. The king himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So it was a very sad time for the small but loyal band of King David, which included Ittai. Now if we keep reading, it turns out that if we go up to chapter 18, we would discover later on there was a great battle. And it turns out that David divided his army at the time of the great battle into three divisions. And Ittai was the commander of one of those divisions. And then if we keep on reading, after that battle was won and David restored to the throne, and we get to the end of the book of 2 Samuel and the end of David's life, it has a list of all of David's mighty men. And guess who was one of David's mighty men? Ittai. So... Loyalty may cost you, but the cost of loyalty in the long run is far less than the cost of disloyalty. And so it's an important quality for us. It's critical quality for us because of the circumstance that we have in our time and in our lives. So let's continue. Now, the second strategy you've got in managing your potentially competing loyalties involves your decision-making. Now, you're going to have competing loyalties. There's going to be times in your life when maybe your spouse doesn't want to match up with your pastor or maybe your job doesn't match up with this or maybe one of your kinfolk, your extended family, doesn't match up. That's not all that uncommon. (laughs) All right. Those are unpleasant circumstances. But we might be able to make decisions with the passing of time over the years 
that can reduce the tension and reduce the likelihood of these loyalties competing one with another. When one is trying to pull this way and one is pulling that way and you're in the middle, you're not going to like it. Some of you have been there and you know what I mean. So what can you do? What kind of choices can you make? Now, I can't offer you guarantees, and what I'm going to suggest is no guarantee. But I think it might be helpful and worth your consideration because it might improve it. Because what you really want is you want the loyalties to be pulling the same direction. You want them to be going generally the same way, if that is possible. If you can make choices as the years go by, so that all of these central competing loyalties, these multiple loyalties that you can't avoid having, if they're all tugging in the same direction, you're going to be happier and more blessed, and you're going to be a much better functional person, not only in your personal life, but you're going to bring glory to God, and you're going to bring honor to Him, and you're going to be able to better demonstrate your loyalty to Christ, and all will work well in a better way. Now, regarding your loyalty to Christ, we do have choices, and some of us have made this choice, some of us maybe haven't made such a choice. Some of us are maybe thinking about this choice. And it's not an easy choice, but it's, a choice will be made either yes, no, or by default it becomes no. Okay? If you choose not to choose, that's a no. All right? If you put it off and put it off and put it off, it becomes a no. And that's your choice of a congregation. Your choice of a congregation. Now, the choice of a congregation really revolves around, in the real world, it revolves to a very large degree around a man. An imperfect man, but a real flesh and blood breathing man, and that's the pastor of the church. Amen. Regarding your loyalty to Christ, you need to choose a congregation whose pastor loves the Bible and has proven his willingness to sacrifice for the welfare of the flock. Now many of us will say, well gee, I just can't find a congregation with a good pastor. I understand that's not easy to do. I, believe me, I understand that. But it, I, I'm, I'm a little sympathetic. But I'm not entirely sympathetic. It's a little like the guy who says, well, I need to buy myself because I really need it for my job. I have got to make a decision here. I've got to buy myself a... a uh, three-quarter ton, four-wheel drive pickup with low mileage, and I've got $5,000 to do it. <laughs> well, you can look and look and look, and you won't find one. <laughs> okay? But you've got to make a choice, you see. If you can't find one that's your perfect choice, you've got to settle for second or third best. But you've got to have one, you see. Not choosing is a choice. You must, for your occupation, have some kind of a pickup. So you, yeah, you settle. But friends, that's, that's the real world. You say, I'm looking for the perfect pastor. Well, you won't find one. I'm looking for the perfect congregation. You won't find one. And there are consequences for searching forever and never finding one, and those consequences are very bad. Amen. So, while I have some sympathy in this area, I don't have infinite sympathy 
for those that haven't struggled with this area and really ultimately with the passing of time choose Idai didn't want to choose between David and Absalom he knew them both probably had great love and affection for both but the moment came when he had to choose it was an unpleasant moment for Idai all right we have to choose sometimes so Find a pastor who loves the Bible, who has a willingness to sacrifice for the welfare of his flock. Select that congregation, support that man, and build that congregation. Amen. And in building that congregation, you are bringing honor and you are building the body of Christ. And you are bringing honor to Christ as the head of the church and the savior of the body. So that's the loyalty in the area of a congregation and our, the loyalty to, our, to Christ. Regarding marriage... There's two, to consider these two areas of decision, and there are many, but consider these two. Number one, and this is at the beginning, choose wisely without haste. Without haste. Choose, please. I encourage all young people to choose without haste. Consider possible areas of future tension. Amen. Think. Think hard. Amen. Second, <laughs> once you're married. Once you're married now. This, I'm going to ex express it in a way that I hope will make sense. Once you're married, do not box in your spouse with ultimatums that demand, choose me over them. Disaster. You are laying the foundation of catastrophe in your marriage. When you say to your spouse, I'm going to box you in and you've got to choose me over them. Now, naturally, you would expect that your spouse would be more loyal to yourself. But let me just make it real. Fill in a couple of names. All right. If I said to my wife, Julie, if I said, Julie... I want you to demonstrate your greater love for me, and I'm going to ask you to choose between me and your father. Now, I have just put her in a spot that is very horrible. Now, I, I, I am supposed to love her. If I love her, why would I want to put her in that spot? Why would I want to do that? Now, she and I know, in terms of family relations, we've tried very careful not to put each other in that particular box. And I think it's worked out well for us, at least so far. <laughs> okay. You, you don't want to play, put your spouse and box them in if that can be avoided. Now, of course, there may be circumstances in which you will be compelled to make such an ugly choice. But until you are absolutely compelled to make such a difficult choice, do not go there. Don't go there unless you must. If you must, you must. But don't go there until you must. 
Because in my view, this is not love, but selfishness that comes from insecurity. Now, and then you say, well, why are you saying that? I'm saying that because I've done enough marriage counseling to see people make this mistake over and over again. They have foolishly and needlessly boxed in their spouse and said, oh, you got to, because I'm not feeling secure in myself, you got to demonstrate your love to me by making me feel good by rejecting all these other people like your family, like your brother that's, uh, you know, that brother of yours, he's such a creep, and you're, you know, you're, you know how I can't get along with your mother, you know, and your mother-in-law, and, you know, so please, you've got to demonstrate you love me more than you love them. Well, it's true. It's true. There is a vow that says you're going to, they should love you more. But why put them into that box? Why put them into that box when you don't have to? Because your spouse, they want to love everybody. They don't want, they don't, they don't want to abandon all of their former friends and relatives and kinfolk. Just like you don't want to abandon yours, most likely. All right, so this is that classic in-law problem. It's real. It happens all the time. Because people make poor choices, largely born, I think, out of certain insecurities that, they're, that they haven't worked through. All right, so you've got to muscle up and grow up. You've got to grow up here. All right. So that's a little advice about marriage and loyalty regarding marriage. Because remember, your goal is to get all of these multiple loyalties pulling in the same direction as much as is possible. That's your goal, to manage these multiple loyalties. All right, third area, this extended family. This, is, this can be a big problem, an enormous problem. You can't choose what extended family you're born into. But there is something you can do, all right? You can restrain your passions regarding your words and deeds. You can think before you speak. You can think before you speak. All right, let me repeat that. Maybe you should repeat that. I can think before I speak. I can think before I speak. Let us learn to be people who think before we speak. How often that would save a strained relationship with Uncle Billy or cousin so-and-so or my father or my sister or whoever it is. But so often we don't. Not every thought that enters your head has to be verbalized. <laughs> so restrain your passions regarding your words and deeds to maintain an honest and kind relationship. Now, I'm not telling you to, to compromise basic values. You don't, that's not what I'm speaking of. And that's actually not what most damaged relationships and extended families are about. Sometimes they will be but many times they're not. Like deposits in a bank, you can build up goodwill or you can build up hostility. And if you work hard and sacrifice and think and are cautious and wise, you can build up goodwill in your extended family and you can avoid some of the problems of multiple loyalties. And finally, your job. Regarding your job, no job is perfect. Some jobs demand things of you that create tension with your spouse, with your congregation, or your extended family. But you can choose, you see. Young men, you need to think hard. Okay, let's go back to thinking. 
you're 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you need to be thinking hard about what kind of a career, what kind of an occupation, what kind of a way are you going to earn your living in such a way that will reduce the tension of multiple loyalties so that your job doesn't put you in conflict with your spouse or with your congregation or your extended family members, or at least your job reduces those possible tensions. There's no perfect job, but some jobs are going to fit better than others. And over the years, I see too many young men, they just don't really make a choice. They don't really think this through, and parents don't give a lot of counsel to their young growing up sons, and so they just kind of fall into something. They just stumble into an occupation or a career because it just crosses their path and they thoughtlessly end up in that. And pretty soon, life's responsibilities compels them to stay right there because they can't afford to make a change. When you're 25 and you're married and you've got two or three kids, you can't make a change very easily then. But you can choose before you're married and before you have children. So young men, think really hard about this. Parents, if you've got young men, think plan what kind of careers and occupations will fit well in the areas that we're discussing here now as these larger institutions continue to fail these local loyalties these local relationships there are they may be all that we have to solve problems okay they're going to become more important they're not going to become less important with the passing of time, I believe these local loyalties, these local relationships become more important. And managing these relationships well shows your loyalty to Christ. So, I believe with the passing of time, you're going to need a good pastor in a local congregation, and, and the need for that congregation, and the need for that good pastor is only going to increase. It's going to increase. This is year 2022. The need for a local congregation and a good pastor is going to be greater by the year 2025. Amen. It's going to be greater yet by the year 2028. Ten years from now, by the year 2032, it's going to be greater yet. As the years pass, your need for a good congregation and a good pastor, someone that you can be loyal to and that you can build for the glory of God, that need is going to be greater on your part it's something you just need to reflect on. Having a loyal spouse, of course, has always been vital. An extended family now. Now, let's just think about this for just a moment as we wind down. An extended family or clan is becoming more important by the year. So for those of you who want, like, history, if I was to take a, if I take a side trip here and we go talk about history for a while, those of you that know about the famous Scottish Highland clans... You know the reason that the Highland clans were so loyal one to another is because that's all they had to trust. They could not trust the central government of Scotland or in, or in, in Edinburgh or in London. They couldn't trust the central government. They couldn't trust uh, promises and oaths that were made by others. All they had was their extended family. And that's why they were so tight, because they needed each other badly. There are other examples from history. I don't think any of us have any gypsy ancestors. <laughs> but Eastern Europe once had lots of gypsies. You've heard of gypsies, right? Well, they were a sort of a subculture 
their own little ethnic group. They had an unusual language history and a different subculture. They were very tight and loyal. And they kind of migrated around. They had different occupations that, that allowed them to do migratory type things. But they were tight and loyal and very clannish. And the reason they had to be is because they were outsiders. They were outsiders. It compelled them to be tight and loyal one to another. And you see, the Highland clans were, in a sense, they were very much outsiders as well. And you ladies and gentlemen, we are outsiders. The people in this room, we have to, you have to realize that. All right? We are, as Scripture says, we are strangers and aliens in the earth. To some degree, Christians have always been outsiders. But more than ever, you and I here tonight are true outsiders. And if we recognize that, we've got to have a strategy that's different than what might work for other folks. Does that make sense? And so, I would suggest that, that these local loyalties are really important. And that includes an extended family. Because you run into financial trouble, maybe Uncle Billy can help you out. You run into another problem. Cousin Sue. So, no, really, I'm I'm serious. Or your brother. or, or, or This is natural. This is normal. This is biblical. This is the way it ought to be. And, of course, in a a community, in a congregation of faith, we have a a larger extended family. And pretty soon, if, if things go well with congregations... You kind of they, you have this interconnecting web that begins to overlap. All these loyalties begin to overlap, and because they're they're and they're running in the same direction. You see, they're not pulling this way and this way. They may not be right dead on, but they're generally going all one direction. That's ideal. That's wonderful. Even if they're not perfect, there's a general stream that's running with these multiple loyalties, kind of all tugging more or less the same direction, which is an enormous blessing. So, prove yourself to be loyal to a pastor, to a congregation, to your spouse, to your, to your extended family to the very best of your ability, to your boss. Your boss will reciprocate, most likely. That loyalty will be reciprocated. And ideally, all of these real-world loyalties will overlap. That, that's the goal. That's the hope. And we don't live in a perfect world, and it's not going to be perfect. But over time, they may. And in fact, congregations that last a long time, they often do. If you look at congregations that have a history of 100, 150 years, there are many families intermarry. There's just all kinds of overlapping loyalties which create this, this fabric that is strong. And it brings glory to God. It's a community. That's what we ought to be striving for. And I believe that this brings glory, glory to Christ. I believe that it brings, demonstrates our loyalty to Him and our commitment to Him. And I believe it's a path forward for our people. Well, I thank you for your patience tonight, and God bless you. Let us be standing. <sighs> thank you.